0: Our window to adapt to a warming world is narrowing quickly. What will it take to avert the climate crisis? Mark Howden is Director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University and a Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, and a member of the Australian National Climate Science Advisory Committee. He has been a major contributor to the IPCC since 1991, with roles in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th and now 6th assessment reports, sharing the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize with other IPCC participants and Al Gore. He was on the US Federal Advisory Committee for the 3rd National Climate Assessment and contributes to several major national and international science and policy advisory bodies. Mark has worked on climate variability, climate change, innovation, and adoption issues for over 30 years in partnership with many industry, community, and policy groups via both research and science policy roles. Professor Mark Howden, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Hello. And so, you know... We can continue to use the atmosphere as a free dumping ground for pollutants from fossil fuel burning. And I'm so glad to see that some legislation is happening now in Australia, which not everyone knows is the biggest fossil fuel exporter. So as you reflect on those changes, what does that mean and how is it doing enough?
1: I think we're starting to do more and we're coming into line with some of the other OECD countries. So that's the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Developed Countries. But there's a lot more to be done. And that's not just here in Australia, but everywhere. So in spite of the fact that we've got the Paris Agreement, which commits the nations across the globe to start reducing emissions in ways which are consistent to keeping temperatures just to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial, we're not doing that. The last two years were record emissions. The only reason why the previous year to that wasn't record emissions was because of COVID. So in Australia, we're not doing enough and globally. We're not doing enough in aggregate.
0: Right. And it took quite a while for that legislation to really be in And have teeth. And could you just break down a little bit about the carbon cap, what that means for the biggest emitters, and how that system works?
1: Yeah, essentially, one of the core components of it is what's called a cap and trade arrangement for the biggest roughly 200 companies across Australia, the 200 biggest emitters. And so essentially, it says there's a limit to how much greenhouse gas emissions you can produce. That limit goes down year by year, companies can actually reduce their emissions more than their cap, in which case they have effectively carbon credits to sell, or they can buy some of those credits from other businesses who are doing that, reducing their emissions more than their cap or sometimes from offset arrangements. So that's where you're perhaps growing trees to offset some of those emissions. It's not a complete coverage of the economy. So there's lots of parts of the economy that aren't addressed by that particular policy. But there's other policies such as the electric vehicle policy or various other policies to do with, say, land carbon sequestration, which try to address these things, at least in a somewhat more comprehensive way.
0: And as one of the scientists who's been advocating for so long, I mean, being a lead author on so many IPCC reports, working to stand up and be a voice, I don't know if you consider yourself an advocate as well as a scientist, some scientists hold back from doing that, but how hard has your work been over the last few years? Well,
1: well, it's been made a little bit easier in Australia by the change of government and the greater acceptance of climate change as a real thing. And the need to act with some degree of urgency is starting to come into play. I guess in terms of that sort of question about in terms of whether I'm an advocate or not, I actually deliberately don't position myself as an advocate. So when we look at say the science policy literature, there's different ways in which scientists can engage with policymakers in government. Uh, and so, for example, you can be a pure scientist who just does the science and nothing more. You can be what's called a, a science arbiter. You can be judging other people's science by, say, sitting on advisory panels. Or one of the other types of ways of engaging with the scientist is actually being a trusted advisor. So what trusted advisors do is they open up the options available to governments to address. And so they can choose from the options with an understanding what the advantages and disadvantages are. And the fourth type of scientist, which you've already referred to is the advocate So when you actually start to think about it, those are three other types of scientists. What they tend to do is they tend to close down the options. So advocates are saying, do what I tell you to do to address this. Arbiters are judging and selecting from the array of science what goes in front of governments. And the pure scientists, of course, are choosing their own science to do in their day-to-day work. Trusted advisors instead are actually often representing other people's work and other people's science to broaden out that array of options. Now, is this hard work? Yes, it can be, because sometimes you're not in one camp or the other, and you've got to work really hard to actually gain the trust of all of the different players. Sometimes it's very frustrating when you can see very rational choices, which could be made uh, by decision makers in government or industry, uh, but they're not being made for different reasons. And so um, that can be frustrating. But overall, I can actually see that there is some progress, even though it's not as fast as we'd like, and perhaps it's not as big as we'd like, but it is at least heading in the right direction direction.
0: And in terms of staying below 1.5 degrees of change, we're far off track with that. And I know you feel it more so in Australia, where I believe you're actually closer to that 1.5 degree of change because that's a global average. People find it hard to get their head around the 1.5 degree of change, which sounds like paltry. So explain in real terms, because your institute at the Australian National University focuses on a lot of these extreme climate events.
1: Yeah. And so when we look at the trajectory of change, we are heading towards 1.5 fairly quickly. And and it's a very narrow path in terms of government policies and industry action and individual action to reduce emissions that would actually keep us within 1.5 degrees. It's not impossible, but it's becoming increasingly difficult day by day and year by year. And we haven't got a lot of time. So if we look at the carbon budget, at today's record levels of greenhouse gas emissions, we've only Got sort of nine to ten years at those levels of emissions before we've completely blown the carbon budget. That's consistent with staying below 1.5 degrees. And when I talk about the carbon budget, it's a relatively simple concept. So if you think about your budget, you know, say your money week to week, you start out the week with a certain number of dollars, and you can spend those dollars quickly, you know, or spend them all by Monday evening, or you can spend them slowly, and with the target of actually finishing the end of the week with just having spent the last dollar. It's the same amount of money, but you can spend it in different ways. You can use that budget to do different things. At the moment, we in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, we're spending it by Monday afternoon, and we could alternatively slow down that expenditure, those emissions, and take a much longer time to use up that carbon budget, which is available to us, and in the process actually have a softer transition, like going from where we are to where we need to be. So that's the, the idea behind a carbon budget, and it works simply because there's effectively a linear relationship between accumulated carbon dioxide emissions and temperature. So if we add up all of the carbon dioxide emissions since 1850 or thereabouts, and we plot it against temperature, we see there's effectively a straight line relationship. And because of that straight line relationship, you can say, if we have any given temperature limit, like one and a half degrees or two degrees, this is the total amount of greenhouse gas emissions we can emit over the history of 1850 and be consistent with that budget. And so that gives us a target. And we're really chewing into that budget amount very, very quickly. Now, in terms of 1.5 degrees most people have no idea, you know, is 1.5 degrees big or is it small? The answer is in an earth systems context, one and a half degrees is really big. Whereas in your day-to-day context, you know, in your neighborhood, one and a half degrees Celsius is not really distinguishable. The difference between a 22 degree day and a 23 and a half degree day, they're both quite comfortable temperatures. There's no big deal there. But at an earth system level, that's a really big change. So if we think back to the last glaciation, the last ice age, you know, so think of those movies where the surface of the earth was in many places covered by ice and snow we had kilometers of ice over parts of europe and parts of north america and our oceans were 120 meters below where they currently are that was five degrees that did that so an ice age was five degrees cooler than our historical temperatures we're already almost heading towards one and a half degrees so that's essentially a third of an ice age and if we where we're tracking to will, is around about three degrees Celsius above pre-industrial, which is like two-thirds of an ice age worth of change. But obviously in the other direction ice ages are colder, we're getting warmer. But that, it just might give you a little bit of a feel for you know 1.5 being really, really big
0: so journeying from a world of ice to a world on fire david fenton the activist communicates a lot of this science and other kind of social justice issues as well put it in other terms he said that we're putting heat into the atmosphere, the equivalent of around a million atomic bombs a day. And that, of course, it's not escaping to outer space, but staying within our atmosphere is a blanket that will eventually, you know, come down and smother us if we don't change our actions. And I think that brings it, I mean, it's really a bold way of putting it, but I think that sometimes we need that kind of information, but then we can visualise that. The
1: only comment, sometimes those images, and sometimes we do need other metrics, but using the million atomic bombs a day, is a guaranteed way of generating fear in people. And we actually know that fear is a very poor motivator for action. And so so I try to use analogies and comparisons, which give people a feel for the degree of change, but don't necessarily instill that fear that then disempowers them.
0: That's a good point. I think that people can accept that we have to make these changes to our behavior. And I, I do think you don't want to put so much fear into people, but I think that not everyone has that kind of mathematical or scientific mind that, the 1.5 degree of change. They're not thinking about, oh, that's accumulated over every square inch of the planet. They're not thinking of the tabulations. So I really like the direction Australia is going in. Some people, you know, obviously there has been some criticism to the carbon offsets. And can you explain why? Is it a bit tighter under this new scheme or there's still rooms for making it more the math? People criticize the math. Is it all the accountancy? Is it all line up?
1: Yeah, the main criticism of parts of the offset schemes is around about what's called additionality, and also the effectiveness of the monitoring. So it's the robustness of the measurements, and and so the criticisms were that you know some of these schemes were counting areas that shouldn't have been counted in terms of the carbon accumulation and that additionality component there to say, if you're going to take on board carbon credits, it can only be for actions that are additional to what you would have done anyway. And there has been a review of this and there's you know ongoing changes to the policy and evaluation as to whether that will be enough to satisfy the critiques of the system remains to be seen.
0: Yes. And now I know that a lot of the work that you do at the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions is Is focusing on obviously part of that on cities. We think about cities of the future. We know that we're living through a decade of transformation, and cities are one of the main drivers of creativity and innovation. But also consuming 75% of the world's natural resources, 70% of global carbon dioxide emissions. So, what do you think the cities of the future will look like, and what are your findings at the institute?
1: I I actually think the cities of the future will look pretty similar in many ways to the cities of today, but they may function differently. So we'll still want the services that we get in cities. We'll still need to have food. We'll still need to have transport. We'll still need to have energy and water and all those sorts of things. And the differences will be that we get those in hopefully much more environmentally benign ways. So in the case of transport, with electric vehicles powered by renewable energy rather than fossil fueled energy vehicles, food maybe with much lower footprints. And so choices of food and foodstuffs. But we'll still want a diversity of food, we'll still want quality food, nutritious food, and and that will in many cases, I think, look very similar to what we currently have. Again, the differences will be in that environmental footprint associated with any particular service. So I think we'll be much more careful with our resources in the future, less wasteful much more circular economy ideas into this. So, you know, one person's waste becomes another person's input into an industrial system. And we'll actually be thinking in a much more integrated way.
0: So we're looking ahead to COP28, which will be held in the UAE. And it's kind of dispiriting to hear that Sultan al-Jabbar, the chief executive, the president of the COP summit, but also the chief executive of the UAE Abu Dhabi National Oil Company and Adnoc, they failed to report their emissions On methane for almost a decade. So, what is your message to them, and how can we, and to governments around the world who are failing to report and to commit?
1: I think people broadly and without specifically relating to that case, I think people are getting pretty fed up with greenwashing where companies or governments say they're going to do something with no intention of doing that, with no plan to do it, with no allocation of resources to do that. And so so that sort of type of greenwashing, I think, is becoming pretty much on the nose and, uh, and I think it will become increasingly so and pre- increasingly problematic for companies. And in some jurisdictions, it could well enter into the legal realm where they can become liable for those sorts of statements, which are evidently untrue. At the same time, I think we need to be aware that decarbonizing or reducing our net greenhouse gas emissions is often a lot harder than people think. And so, a company might say, Yes, we're going to hit net zero by a particular date, thinking it's going to be easy, maybe buy some offsets, quickly shift over to electric vehicles or whatever it might be. But when it actually comes down to it, it's actually a lot harder to do. And so, we may not be able to find good offsets. Electric vehicles may be, you know, we may not have supply of those, or they may be too expensive upfront costs. things like that. So, So in those circumstances, I think it's understandable that companies and governments may not be able to actually meet their commitments. And as long as they're transparent about that and explain why and what they're trying to do to catch up, I think that's okay. So I think we're going to be increasingly discerning between those companies and governments which actually do deliberate greenwashing and those who... Just essentially overpromise accidentally, and then try to readjust as they go.
0: And so, thinking about the future of humanity, of course, renewable energy technologies are advancing rapidly. What role do you think that the new technologies and even AI could play in helping accelerate change? Well,
1: one of the things we have to do is we have to increase the rate of learning. So we're entering into increasingly uncharted territory, and not just in terms of climate change, but in many, many other areas of activity, and AI being one of those, of course. And I think what we need to do is we need to find ways to learn more quickly individually, but also importantly, learn more quickly as a society, you know, as communities, as villages, as professional groups. And there are advantages of using some of those technologies in terms of accelerating. That learning. But if we just blindly use some of those technologies like AI we could do quite the opposite. We could take the creative sort of aspects of being a human and essentially outsource that or try to outsource it to a computer. And I can predict that's not going to go well. Being overly reliant on AI, which is incredibly computing intensive. If those computers aren't run by renewable energy, we just power up on more climate change and make it worse. So, So we have to be smart about the way we approach this. We need to be discerning about the technologies we use and how we use them. And we need to think about the relationships between those technology and social outcomes, environmental outcomes, you know, how to redesign our systems, how to redesign our governance. So I think there's going to be a need for a lot more thought and creativity in the future.
0: And on the importance of creativity, the arts and environmental humanities, how important do you feel are telling the stories in that education process to help us also navigate climate crises?
1: Well, different people learn in different ways and you've already mentioned this some people you know haven't got a particularly mathematical bent but you know they respond well to narratives and i think when we look at that you have some people who think in quantitative terms and some people who think qualitative some people are motivated by feelings and some people are motivated by facts and what i think the arts can do is they can actually help particularly with the motivation side of things and help engage with people who aren't necessarily being engaged by the fact-based discussions so i think there's not only a creative element of opening up the futures and reimagining futures, there's an element of engaging with otherwise engaged people, there's elements of motivation for people to actually motivate people to take action in appropriate ways.
0: Exactly. And then just understanding that we're all part of this connected planet and to understand the plight of people on the other side of the world. We're seeing right now in Hawaii, the terrible fires. Of course, you had the black summer and it seems like the fire seasons have become the fire year. In some places. On the other hand, we are seeing exciting or heartening things, like in Montana with the legislation. So, just share your thoughts.
1: We live in a diverse world, and we're in a funny time where we, in a sense, sometimes see the best of humanity and sometimes see the worst of humanity. And and I think what we need to do is be very strong in wanting to lift the game of each others and and ourselves. And so, so I think that's one of the sort of key things, uh, particularly young people, should be demanding that we actually behave better towards each other and care more about each other and for the world that we live in. In terms of those fires and things, exactly as you say, is that the world which we thought was going to hit us in 2050 or 2070, in a way, is hitting us now in the 2020s. So those risks in many cases are coming much faster and harder than we thought were going to come. And so in many cases, we're unprepared for the severity of those changes in risk. And so we need to lift our game in terms of that preparation for big events like those fires or droughts or floods that we've seen over the last few years. But at the same time, we need to both reduce greenhouse gas emissions as as well as adapt to the changes that we're seeing. Uh, And increasingly, as I mentioned before, we need to integrate that emission reduction task with the climate adaptation task with the sustainable development task ahead of us. So we actually ensure that we actually tick all boxes off when we take an action rather than just ticking one box and putting big crosses others. So we just need to be smarter about how we do things.
0: And not just go for the easy wins. And I was so happy to see that legislation in Montana for the young environmental activists, you know, having that legal victory. It's, it's everyone's constitutional right. It should be to have a clean and healthy environment. And we've also seen that previously then in Germany. So hopefully this is a rising movement that really it takes action further. And I'm just wondering... Just
1: on that, I was just speaking today to one of the senators, the independent senator in Australia, that's David Pocock, and he's introduced to Parliament a bill, like a piece of legislation, which effectively legislates that right to an equitable future, one where people are free of these environmental harms that could otherwise be visited on them. And that's in response to a court case that some Australian young people launched a few years ago, which initially won the case, but then it was overturned on appeal. And that appeal was by the government. And so to some extent, this is resetting that event recently. And so putting it in legislation. So then the justice system is actually responding to those legislation and including those concerns.
0: Yes. And your own environmental awakening, I believe you encountered extreme climate events in your youth that perhaps focused your mind on the importance of mitigating climate change.
1: Yeah. So you've done your homework. So like I, as a youngster I lived on the coast of New South Wales which is eastern Australia. I spent a lot of time outside. I was highly attuned to the weather because you know that would affect whether I went to the beach <laughs> tomorrow or, or went hiking or whatever. And so I was sensitized to the weather and climate since very young age. And when I was in my teens a cyclone came down the coast it was a La Nina year. Cyclones tend to come further south and further west in our part of the world in La Nina years and the t- End of that cyclone came down the coast, huge winds, huge waves, and it blew the top of the roof of our house off the family home. And so, which is a pretty scary experience when your house is torn apart. And luckily, that roof, you know, which is many tons of timber and metal, flew through the air about 80 meters. And luckily, it didn't land on another house, it actually landed in open space because otherwise, you know, the damage can just multiply. So, like a domino thing, our house has the roof lifted off, it hits another house that gets fragmented the fragments go onto the next house etc so we were very lucky in that neighborhood that didn't happen but obviously that's a pretty traumatic experience which sensitizes one even further to what's going on in terms of our climate and climate extremes and from then on I've actually had a core part of my work and my personal interests have been in relation to weather and climate
0: yes and I saw that you contributed to a piece a few days ago about the possible dangers or effectiveness in trying to prevent cyclones
1: yeah, that's a, an exploratory piece of work with some young students at Australian National University. And we were just noting that cyclone damage is increasing, that still many lives lost each year to due to cyclones or hurricanes or typhoons, depending on which part of the world you live in, it depends, you know, that changes what you call them. And and as a proportion of the total number of cyclones, we're seeing more of the Category 3, 4 and five ones, the really bad ones, and that happens right across the world. And so those are the storms that cause maximum damage. And the question which we raised was, could we intervene early to weaken those cyclones or to divert those cyclones or, in some cases, even stop those cyclones? What was the technological requirements to do that? You know, is it feasible? And then asking the question, should we do that? So delving into the issues of ethics and government governance, governance being how we organise ourselves. And so we covered a broad spectrum of possibilities there. And I think our broad conclusion is, um, yes, there is enough evidence there that we could actually have significant cyclone risk reduction based on our existing understanding. We can probably do a lot better than our existing understanding. But at the moment, we haven't got in place the governance mechanisms, the ways in which to manage the use of these technologies. And for that reason, I think there'll be a reluctance to go too far down this path.
0: And could you tell us a little bit more about your work with the IPCC as a lead author, how you work also with governments within the IPCC and that a lot of people don't understand that relationship. And some have said, I believe you, your colleague, Kevin Trenberth, has said that he believes that it should have more teeth, You know, maybe more of an advocate instead of just presenting the science, but just pushing for change.
1: Yeah, so I've been involved in the IPCC since the early '90s, which is a you know, a long, long time, and 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 I've been engaged in many different roles in the IPCC. So it hasn't just been churning the handle, doing the same thing every time. And I've seen a big evolution of the IPCC. So when I first joined, it was fairly much a bit of a scientific oddity in some ways, and but these days it's actually core business in terms of geopolitics. You know, the government-to-government relations, positioning different countries against each other a comparative advantage, etc. So we've seen a big change in terms of the meaningfulness of research in relation to climate change, and that's reflected in government interest. Now, there's different views on this, but fundamentally, I see the IPCC as being effective because it is actually owned by the governments. So that's the governmental in the word intergovernmental panel. So the scientists who do the work almost invariably for free. So, you know, all of that stuff for the IPCC has been pro bono, like it's been free and on top of my day job. So it's a significant personal and professional cost to do these things. But all that work from the scientists, which most people think of as the IPCC, is in fact subsidiary to the governments who actually make all of the key decisions about the scope of the IPCC reports and the approval of the reports. And that might seem a bit problematic in some ways, but what it actually means is that when the approval happens, that has to happen in a unanimous way. That means every government in that room agrees with those statements in that approval. And that means that every government owns it. They can't say then subsequently, oh, I don't believe that bit of science because they've actually signed off on it. And so that's actually the power of the IPCC is the ownership of the messages by the governments. So it's not the ownership of scientific messages. It's actually the ownership of the government's messages. And that's the power. And as soon as we become more advocates, I think we lose that power.
0: Yeah, it's a really delicate balance. And I do admire that so many hours. It's a great labor of love. It's really important you work on it. It's all free. You've spoken of your enjoyment of the natural world. And of course, Australia has the most biodiversity. So as you reflect on the beauty and wonder in Australia and around the world, just share some of those memories. So it reminds us what we're we're fighting for to protect.
1: Well, I guess different people have very different responses and relationships to the natural world. So someone who might've been exposed to a big fire or a big cyclone or hurricane might have a very different relationship to someone who hasn't and so i think part of our view of these things is it's highly contextual it's highly individual and so there's no rights and wrongs here my sort of particular relationship i guess in a way reflects to some extent my scientific heritage so when i was young and you know racing around the bush in the sydney basin i got to know pretty much every species like there's a couple of thousand species so i knew all of the different species where they grew what characteristics i knew where they lizards were and the snakes were i knew where to find the beautiful orchids and things like this i knew where the fish were going to be at what time of year and things like that and so it brought me immense joy by being able to translate that knowledge into experiences which i i enjoyed and i guess that reflects my scientific sort of background because i'm doing that knowledge to experience translation And whereas other people will go out there and just want the experience, they don't need to know all the bits and pieces, they just want that delight of swimming in clear water and walking across beautiful wildflower meadows and things like that. And so so there's very different ways of approaching this. But I think almost invariably, people can tell it when it's wrong. So people will spot immediately when they go to a river which is polluted. People will spot immediately when they go to a landscape which is eroded. People will spot very quickly when you actually see landscapes which have been denuded of trees. So I think sitting in behind that is a recognition of both what things might look like when everything is okay but also a deep understanding of when things are not okay.
0: And as you think about the future and education and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
1: I I think in a sense, you mentioned duty of care before, and I think part of this is taking action that shows that we care. So and I think this is not just caring about the way things are, but the way things could be. So it's the future that we're heading towards, which is quite challenging in many ways, versus the future that we could have as individuals and societies. And I think there's a big gap there. And I think that gap is growing. And I think the aspiration people should have is how do we close that gap? You know, how do we actually go to a world which is worth living in?
0: Thank you, Professor Mark Howden, for your dedication, sharing your scientific knowledge active hope and imparting the importance of acting today we have all the solutions we need to live sustainably we all live on one planet we call home thank you for adding your voice to one planet podcast and the creative process thanks mia one planet podcast is supported by the jan mishowski foundation this interview was conducted by mia funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students associate interview producer on this episode was katie foster one planet podcast is produced by mia funk additional production support by sophie garnier theme music is written and performed by juan sanchez we hope you've enjoyed this program if you'd like to get involved in one planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution just drop us a line at team at one thank you for listening